Today is the first Sunday of 2021, so I will be beginning a Christmas series to end our year and to focus our hearts on the meaning of the season that we celebrate, what we call Advent or Christmas. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which simply means the coming. We celebrate the, the coming of the Christ child, hence Christmas. So uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent. We have lit the first candle, Pastor Tony did this morning, of our Advent wreath. Uh, it's crazy, 2020 is, is coming to an end. Speaking of our year and speaking of crazy, our year has been a crazy one, hasn't it? Last year as well, uh, 2020 and 2021, if they had a rap battle, in my estimation, it would be a close tie. Uh, we've had a, a couple of years uh, of, of what has uh, just been, uh, frankly, crazy. And what has made it more crazy or more intense isn't so much the pandemic stuff, the political strife, the power struggles, the painful shootings, or the personal stress. Not to mention the destructive impacts of sin that rip apart families we know, that sin that rips apart churches and relationships. More sobering, of course, is the loss of loved ones. These are all very heavy realities that seem to have uh, spiked in the last two years. But what has made it more intense, perhaps more than anything, has been the increased dividedness of our culture. I read this article in Time magazine that began with this, and I quote, there is no advanced industrial democracy in the world more politically divided or politically dysfunctional than the United States today. How did the world's most powerful country get to this point? End quote. The author went on to describe issues of race, racism, economics, and media, and politicians that certainly don't help. Our politicians have been divided for a long time. Uh, the public used to have been a little more united than our politicians. We used to have a more kind of united core in our country and our politicians were kind of the more uh, fringe and we as a, uh, as a culture and a country kind of pulled them in and you know kind of kept them on a rope but that that's changed when you think about something like 9-11 and how our nation pulled together in the face of tragedy and churches were overflowing with people who were coming to the Lord and asking questions about God and people who were, who were mourning and transforming that, that, that was a totally different experience in the face of tragedy, how our country pulled together. We are not pulling together, we are pulling apart. And in the midst of this, we hear daily of something called fake news. Fake news is a neologism. A neologism is just uh, the, the, the term, the technical term that we use for a phrase or a word that has become so popular that it has entered into common use. A, a, a term that kids know and grandparents know a term that people from different ethno-cultural backgrounds know what it is. And that said, in our country, it is a contested and weaponized term for our divided bipolar media to sling at one another and to use pejoratively to marginalize the other side. In fact, it is so mainstream that it has a lengthy Wikipedia entry. According to Wiki, fake news is the false... Uh, uh, misleading information that is presented as news that is often having the aim of damaging the reputation of a person or entity or making money through advertising revenue. There's even a separate wiki for fake news in the United States. It has its own separate entry. Then, of course, there are tons of articles that are floating around in newspapers, magazines, journals, tabloids, and social media. Oh, the social media. Oh, the online media. It has exasperated things. Investigations have shown how fake news has exploded with the use of bots. Have you heard of bots? 
Uh, bots are these software programs that perform automated, repetitive, and predefined tasks which mimic human users. They're fake humans that repost and click uh, on the like buttons and what have you in the news so as to make the, the, the fake news from fake news publishers look bigger than it is. This makes their articles appear more popular than they actually are. And, and with the, the right kind of, of writing and finesse, it gives it the appearance that it's more factual than they actually are. So we have bots infiltrating with, with hits and likes. We have these algorithms that play on online content so that people get caught into an echo chamber where, oh, you like that? I'm just going to keep feeding you what you like. And that's just going to keep jacking you up so that you just get more angry at people who have different ideas than you. And then that ultimately gets used by big companies to profit off of the divide. It's really sick and twisted when you think about it, that there are people out there who are profiting off of creating fear, creating enemies, and, and pushing divides further. Meanwhile, the real dangerous tribes and the forces can lurk behind the scenes. It's a lot like the devil's tactic in our day to convince people that he doesn't exist. As atheism and anti-supernaturalism prevails, so the devil prevails as well. It's, it's, it, it's easy to prevail when you got people distracted by other things. So the enemy of our souls, the prince of the air, can pray while he manages to convince pop culture that there is no devil and there is no God. Oh, he can have his way with that. On the note of the devil and darkness and divides, it is fitting today that we come to the light. We have lit the first candle of Advent and we celebrate the light of the world who has come into the broken and busted up earth, providing mending and providing unity and oh more than mending in unity oh more profoundly and deeply he has come to a rebellious world that is headed to hell in a handbasket to rescue a people from from what they deserve and to give them what they don't deserve salvation the story of the bible is far worse than 2020 or 2021 we are just a historical blip in a greater story of the, of the fall of humanity and, and, and a, momentum, a momentary symptom of an epic saga that is taking place that God has disclosed to us in his holy word so that we would not be left in the dark in dark days. He, God, has explained to us the cause of it all. You see, humans rebelled against their creator who is the giver of life and the designer of harmony and the revealer of truth. Hence, rebellion then logically brings with it the opposite. Death, division, distortion. We were made for life and harmony and truth, but we rebelled against the one who made us, and so we have death and division and distortion. Friends and fellow countrymen, hear me. More importantly, the church of Jesus Christ, hear me. Today's message is not about the fake news of our culture. We are a Bible church who preaches scripture. We don't preach the evening news. And, and I'm, I'm sad to see what has happened in our day when, when many uh, former really solid Bible teachers have succumb to these sorts of things. We are a Bible church. We come to hear about the Bible. Hopefully you didn't come today to hear my views on ivermectin or the efficacy of masks or vaccines or whatever. God forbid that the sacred desk of the pulpit be soiled to such a degree. We are a Bible church who preaches the Bible. Further, today's message will not be about the problems of our culture per se, we can attack problems in our culture, and you'll see me doing it all the time. But rather, it is about the problem of humanity and the only hope that we have in the gospel. Because in addition to being a Bible church, we are a gospel church. 
So on every given Sunday, you are going to hear the scripture taught in context, hinged to the redemptive story of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, heralding the graces of the triune God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. Over my dead body will I leave the pulpit without telling you who God is and what God has done while faithfully teaching scripture to the very body of Christ that he died for to prepare our hearts for receiving communion, which pictures his, his death and his life to make us his people. This is the joy of Sunday. This is why we come, and we come ready, and we come eager, and we come to hear his word, and we come to partake in the table, and we come to join in song, and we come to sing about him and learn about him who saves. That said, get a Bible and get it open to the book of Acts and find your way to Acts chapter 1. Speaking of the story of redemption in Jesus, Acts chapter 1 is a pivotal turning point in that story, that saga of God's redemption that flows through his people Israel. The historic Jesus of Nazareth, the Israelite, is risen from the dead, and he is about to ascend into heaven as you open to Acts chapter 1. Mind you, this man of history is not a mere man alone. Sure, he is man, but not merely man. You see, he is God in the flesh, one person in two natures. He is God and man. Now, given the aforementioned problem of our rebellion against the giver of life who made us for life and harmony and truth, but we rebelled and we brought in death and division and distortion. Given this problem, he has come to give his life. He, he has come as a man. God the Son has come as a man to give his life so that sinful humans can enter into a relationship with his Father. They can become sons and daughters of him by way of adoption through what he has accomplished in becoming a man. He becomes a man and he lives the life that we did not live. And he pays the debt that we owed because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And he pays it by his death. Rebelling against the giver of life brings death and so the son takes on human life and dies as a human in our place. Because he is a human, he can die in our place. He can bear the debt for humanity because he is fully humanity. And because he is God, he has the prerogative to extend forgiveness, to say, I forgive you. You are forgiven. Behold, the Christ child is the God-man who has come in order to come to the cross, in order to, 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 to live a life that we didn't live, in order to give his life in our place, and then to boot, to rise up, to show that the payment that he made was paid in full, and it, it worked. It worked. By golly, it worked. And that's why we're here today, because that, that life and that death and that resurrection, it has kept on working. And those of you who know him, you feel it beating in your chest. He is alive. He is risen. He has ascended. And he's coming again in the same flesh that he entered in that manger, that Christ child, the same flesh, risen from the dead, victorious over the wages of sin and death. And so I start the sermon today by talking about fake news because I just want to use it as a timely metaphor because it is Advent season, it is Christmas season, and we will be surrounded by a fake news that is more important than your opinions about the fake news going on in politics and the culture. This is the fake news that surrounds Christ and Christmas and our faith. It, it, it always comes. It always comes around this time. They're going to start releasing things on YouTube and People are going to start smack-talking Christmas and saying all kinds of things, and they're going to start spreading all kinds of fake news. So I thought, I'm going to do a sermon series since everyone's talking about fake news and whatnot. It just seems like I can just piggyback on that. We'll talk about the fake news of Christmas and the fact news of Christmas. 
with all the fake news around the nation, it just seemed like I'm, I could just hijack this neologism and use it for a sermon series. So that's what I'm going to do. And unlike our recent national debates, which, I mean, really, the debates that we're having go all the way back to our nation's founding. When you look at our nation's founding and you follow history, you see we've always had divides. The founding of our nation, and no doubt, always had those divides because the founding of our nation is a sordid history. Now, granted, you can cherry-pick the history. You can cherry-pick the history. If you want to paint America as an oppressive nation, you, I mean, that's really easy to do. The transatlantic slave trade really soiled us, not to mention Jim Crow and ongoing issues of race. So you could, you could just cherry-pick, you know, and there's large chunks you can pick and just make America look like this horrible, oppressive place. On the other hand, you could cherry-pick it and, oh, here's a pilgrim and here's some Christians and... You can cherry pick it and make it look like it's this pristine worship center, you know, the great Christian America or whatever. It's easy to cherry pick it and paint it that way. On the other hand, it, it's, it's, it's filled with worshipers, genuine Christians who are coming here for religious freedom. It, it's filled with oppressors, of course. And it is also filled with opportunists. Like, I, I don't know about this God stuff or this slavery thing. I'm just here to make tobacco and make money. <laughs> you know, so you have opportunists. So it's easy to spin our history any way that you want and divide people if, if you are not nuanced enough and you don't understand how history works enough. And so from our very beginning, we've been a divided nation. And, and so when I see people who say things like, we're more divided than we've ever been before, it's like, well, yeah, but, I mean, you know, Civil War was kind of big. And, you know, not to minimize the current divides, but, you know, understand this. It's really easy to cherry pick and spin history that way, just as much as it is for these, you know, shenanigan preachers to cherry pick the Bible and pull it out of context. Now, that said, our nation has a, has a sordid history. Okay, it has a history. People could pick on it and spin it and do whatever they want with it. But the church's history is older than this country. Indeed, the church's history is older than, you know, all of the current governmental parties in this world. Uh, I mean, we, we go way back. We go way back to Acts chapter 1 and 2 when the church was born. This passage that is in front of you is, is our, you know, is our Thanksgiving, if you will. You know, this is where you can go back and talk about our origins. And our history has had a steady stream of fake news around it since the days of Jesus. In fact, we might say that Jesus was killed by fake news. And mind you, he was killed at the hands of the government to boot. And his apostles, all but one, John, likewise were killed. John himself was tortured, but... They were all tortured and all but John were killed. And the church suffered for 300 years until it found tolerance from some governmental powers in the West and pagan Europe. And the church flourished in the East out, outside of those Western powers until the rise of Islam came and started to attack the church. The church has always been attacked. The church has always suffered from fake news. Now, speaking of, of pagan uh, fake news and attacks against the church and the West and Europe, this is where a lot of fake news comes today. A wise man once said, haters going to hate. So they, they do. And as well, haters lie. If you have been a Christian long enough and you have shared your faith in hostile settings, you no doubt have heard the fake news that Christmas and Christianity is just a bunch of pagan stuff that came out of Western Europe that was remixed into a new religion. Like typical fake news, people love conspiracy theories. And so, you know, we've had the Da Vinci coders. That was kind of a big thing. Da Vinci code, you know. Tom Hanks, you know, like he's an expert. You know, we've got the Da Vinci Code. We have the Zeitgeisters. We have BHI Colts. I could be here all day talking about the, the haters that hate. And they'll say our holiday and our Lord are just a bunch of pagan photocopies. 
I'm dating myself. There could be people who don't know what photocopies are. So they're screenshots. Uh, they're, they're selfies that are doctored up with those filters, you know? You know, you know, you might be guilty of it, we, you know, but uh, you'll be on, you'll be looking at Instagram, and you see your friends, and you're like, she don't look like that, or, you know, he doesn't look like that. They got the filters on it. And so the haters would say that Christianity is just like that. It's a, it's a selfie that put a bunch of pagan filters on it. They were just jacking for beats, and they took pagan stuff, and they mixed it all together, and that's Christianity. Oh, the, the Christmas trees, they'll say. Those are pagan. Those are pagan. Oh, the idea of a virgin conception and subsequent virgin birth. Oh, that's also pagan. That virgin birth stuff, it was copied from pagan myths. And they'll claim that the date itself, oh, oh December, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's pagan. Because, you know, in December, those pagan Europeans, those Romans, they had their winter solstices to their pagan gods. So, you know, December, December, virgin, virgin, tree, tree, it's all pagan. So allegedly, some really uncreative ancient Jewish people were like, mm, we want to make up a religion. And so these really uncreative ancient Jewish people stole... Uh, uh, from their oppressors, Gentile pagans, their ideas, and they're like, oh, let's use these. And we'll, hey, we'll call it Christianity. Yeah, uh, you know, allegedly that's what happened. I submit to you this is fake news. And in this sermon series, we'll engage these conspiracy notions. Further, we will engage some of our own fake news am among our Christian beliefs around the holidays. We've got some fake news going on in the church. We do stuff with angels that's a little new agey, and it's not exactly biblical, uh, how we understand the wise men and the shepherds and the staple and whatnot. We've got some fake news in our camp, too. So in this sermon series, I'll take some shots at us and some shots at the culture, and we'll try to clear some air on some misunderstood matters. But way before we get into these matters, we need to lay a foundation from Scripture about why these matters matter and how we can get on with engaging them. What's a proper biblical way to engage them? Acts is a great place for us to do that because it begins with confronting fake news matters and, and, and it shows us, you know, how, how they navigated this. It's, it's rooted in the commission of our Lord Jesus when he ascended. And so Acts 1 is a great place to be because we get to see his ascension and we get to be reminded of his commission. It, and, and we get to see just after that commission the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the launch of the church. And, 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 and then as you continue reading Acts, you see how, you see how the why, Right? So we're going to see in the commission, that's what we're going to begin with. You know, they're, they're committed to go and preach the truth, so they're going to confront fake news. But then we get to see how, how they did that. So before we get into the how of engaging fake news with facts, let's start with a why. And for starters, why it matters to us, let me just say this, it matters because Jesus is real. It matters because this Christmas stuff is true. It's not pie in the sky. People weren't making it up. It, it's, the, it's, the real, it's really real. It really happened. It's really real. It's a matter of historical fact that Jesus existed. That's a matter of history that he claimed to be God in the flesh, performed miracles, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. It matters because it's real, and it matters because it mattered to our real Lord. He came to bring facts, and more importantly, he came to bring salvation. So on this note, he commissioned his people to go and do the same. The first point on your outline. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, history records the final marching orders that he gave to his followers who would start the church. These are the recorded primary sources that you have on your outlines and on, on the slide in front of you referenced there. 
These, these are the references, Matt 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and Acts 1, where we have turned. And in these primary sources, we see Jesus telling his followers to go into the world of fake news and bring the good news of the God of Israel and his salvation in Christ. Draw your eyes at the text, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking these things concerning the kingdom of God. Notice the, the language here, convincing proofs. Okay, you, you know, the church isn't like, check your brains at the door. Oh, just believe it. Why should I believe it? Well, just trust. Take a leap of faith. No, they were offering many convincing proofs. These are facts, okay? Draw your eyes at the text in verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus told them to go into the remotest parts of the earth. Go into the world. In the cross-references that are listed on the outline, those primary sources, Jesus specifies that he wants them not just to go into the earth, but to go specifically to all people groups, which are socio-ethno-cultural linguistic groups. You go to all of those groups, and the book of Acts records how they did that, and the how is by the Spirit. As Jesus said, you're going to wait before you go. You're going to wait for the Spirit, because the Spirit is the how. The Spirit is the power. The Spirit... It's the third person of the true and living God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. And just as the Son exercised a mission in coming to the earth in Christmas and Easter and in Ascension, so too the Spirit exercises a mission in inaugurating the church and empowering the church to go. And in the book of Acts, we read about how they went to the ends of the earth and reached those people groups. They reached uh, Jewish people. They reached Samaritans. They reached Greeks and Romans and Cretans and rich and old and tall and short and all that is in between. There's not time to cover the whole book, so we're going to move from uh, the in-between as they're going around and, and reaching and find your way now to the 17th chapter. With this context in mind about the how, about the why, why should we confront fake news with regard to Christ, now we're going to move to the how. And as you get into the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, you have entered into the the, the time where the book of Acts is really highlighting the ministry of the historic Saul HaTarsi that we know as Saul of Tarsus, or we know him by his, uh, his uh, Gentile name that he had, Paul, Paul the Apostle. Saul HaTarsi is Paul. And Paul is headed to Macedonia, which is a country lying in north of Greece. And we'll see some cities that are mentioned in this passage uh, that are all in Macedonia. In the beginning of the chapter, we see Paul journeys to Thessalonica, in verses 1 through 9, if you look at that with your eyes, uh, this is modern uh, Salonica. It's a real place. This is real historical account. These are real facts. Draw your eyes at verse 1 of Acts 17. Now when they had traveled through Am Am Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Since uh, people don't sit around memorizing biblical geography, it is helpful to note the distance here. Paul travels from Philippi, to Amphipolis, to Apollonia, to Thessalonica. That's a hundred-mile journey. That would be like walking to Big Bear. Anybody want to walk to Big Bear? I mean, in light of these extensive travels, we can see that Paul was a tough dude. 
He had some serious calf muscles. Those, those Wayne Madeira calf muscles, he had those. Big old calf muscles. And on top of having big old muscles, he was an intellectual beast. An intellectual beast. He goes, his starting point is to the synagogue. The synagogue is the intellectual center of the community. Paul goes to Thessalonica and he goes to the intellectual center, the synagogue. Along with being an intellectual center, synagogues were places of, of high culture. They were places of worship. They were sort of like a YMCA mixed with a senior center, mixed with a school, mixed with a library, mixed with a church. Life was, it, it, that's where life was centered in, in towns, in cities. It was a great starting point to go because that's where everyone is if you want to engage people with ideas, and that's where news spreads. You know, the news revolved around what happened at the synagogue that day or that week. And so it's a natural starting point. It's a natural starting point for other reasons that are theological and practical. Theologically speaking, Paul's message was about Jesus, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. And Paul is Saul HaTarsi. He is Jewish as well. And so theologically, it is fitting because the story of the gospel comes through the Jewish people. This is the Jewish Messiah. This was a message for them. It went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Theologically, that's significant. Jesus himself went to the Jewish people to offer the kingdom of God, which we saw in Acts chapter 1. They're still wondering about the, the kingdom of God and when that's going to come to Israel. And, and Jesus said, that's going to happen. Don't worry. But right now, there's something else that's going on. I need you to go into the world and correct all this you know, fake news and proclaim the facts that I have come, and, and I will return, and all that, that's going to happen when he comes. It's going to be popping. It's going to be fantastic, but just, just hold on, wait. So theologically, beginning in the synagogue is significant because the story of the gospel begins with Abram and Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, and so you start with those people. Where do you find them? Synagogue. Now, practically speaking, it's also significant because the synagogue uh, was a ready audience. Uh, the Apostle Paul had a synagogue card. You know, he had, he had a vax card. He could walk in there. He, he's a well-known figure in the synagogues. He was a high-ranking Pharisee before he came to know the Lord. So he could roll in no problem. Traveling rabbis and Pharisees could speak in the various synagogues. And so Paul used that to his advantage. He goes up in there and he just starts bringing it. And they're like, oh, you know, hold up. Wait, what's going on here? And so like Jesus, Paul preaches the word and he drops facts on people. And those facts bring conflict. That's the next point on your outline. A mob starts searching for the Apostle Paul to silence him. The mob does not find Paul and uh, Paul's traveling companion, Silas. And so they go and they jack their, their homie, this guy named Jason, who, who's one of their friends. You can see that in verses 6 and 9. Have the text open. Be looking at the text. Now, in spite of this, the Christians at Thessalonica, they kept on boldly proclaiming the gospel. And Paul and Silas then move on to Berea to preach there. If you look at the text, verses 10 through 15, you'll see that. Berea is about 45, 45 miles west of Thessalonica. And so he's still trekking. He's getting those calf muscles even bigger. It's a large and popular city, Thessalonica. And, and once again, Paul kicks things off by going to the synagogue and, and preaching Christ. Draw your eyes at verse 10 of Acts 17. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and they arrived, and when, and when they got there, what did they do according to verse 10? They went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, as discussed earlier, this is sociologically, theologically, and practically significant. This is a, you know, a place to go. That's the, that's the operative strategy. Now when, draw your eyes at the text, verse 11. Now when those who were noble-minded, those in Thessalonica, for they greeted, excuse me, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So they heard the message, and they waited against the scriptures to determine if it was fake or if it was fact. 
And then look at the text, verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a prominent number of Greek women and men. So in verse 4, draw your eyes at the text. Notice in verse 4, it says some of them believed. Okay, But now here in Berea, it says that many of them believed. Luke once again notes that the prominent or the leading people in the town were among the believers. Now, the message of Christ was compelling. Educated, intellectual, cultural elites were coming to the Lord. As well, the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed were coming to the Lord. The message was spreading and breaking down those class divisions. And as it was spreading, that earlier mentioned mob that went to Jack, the homie Jason, now catches up with them. Draw your eyes at verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica found that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, Oh, he went up to Berea. He's telling them the fake news. We're going to come up. The text says, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Haters going to hate. Notice that Luke stresses the ethnic tension of the crowd. In verse 11, he mentions the Greeks receiving the message. And here in verse 13, he mentions the Jewish people of Thessalonica rejecting the message. This is a good reminder to see that the church was always at the centers of ethnic tensions. It is a fitting place to be because we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. And in a culture like ours that is divided around this, a shooting happens, a protest happens, a riot happens, and people start dividing and attacking and flinging and slinging, the Church of Jesus Christ should be the place where that never happens, where we come together, where we reconcile, where we seek forgiveness, where we seek the Lord. This has been a part of the ministry of the church from its earliest days, you see in the text of Acts. Now, given the sociological, historical, and theological tensions that are going on at the time, it's understandable. The Jews were oppressed by the Gentile groups, and now the Jewish Messiah has invited the, the, the oppressors into covenant with him. And uh, they're talking about the law of Moses is being fulfilled, and the law of Moses is really a big deal in Jewish culture. And in places like Galatians 5.18 and Romans 6.14, Paul goes on record saying things like, you're not under the law. I mean, that would be really radical. Gentiles coming in, Gentile inclusion was actually a harder pill to swallow than Jesus being the Messiah. You know, all right, cool, he's the Messiah. Wait, hold up, he, he's, he's welcoming Gentiles? I don't know about that. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those, verse 15, who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and giving him a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So they, 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 they got to get over to Athens. They just keep on mobbing, steady mobbing. They're spreading the message, and they get there, and the scene is dark. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 15. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving the command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now those, those who escorted Paul, they receive a command. Draw your eyes at the text. They receive a command for Silas and Timothy. They want him to come. What I want you to see here is that, that Paul is plotting, and Paul has this, this, this compassion, which leads us to the next point. He cares about people. He, he, he's, he's receiving command, hey, Silas, Timothy, they need to come as soon as possible. He's working on stuff. You guys are going to go over there. You guys are going to go over here. He's plotting more ministry. The opposition, the discouragement, the personal rejection, that wasn't going to stop Paul. He's got a mob that's trying to take his head off. He's got people going crazy on his Facebook page. Facebook done already took him down. He had his YouTube took down and it's not monetized. Everyone's trying to shut him down. But ultimately, it wasn't personal at all. We see in the teachings of the Lord Jesus to his disciples, like in John 15, he taught his disciples, look, ultimately the world's beef is with me. They don't like you because they didn't like me. And being trained by Jesus, as Paul was, he, he no doubt held fast to those words and 
more words on the lips of his master to hold him through these hard times. Paul was concerned for the gospel partners. He, was, he had a compassion to, to, to see the world transformed. He had a compassion to see these dark places come to hear the facts. He was focused on the commission of the Lord to bring these facts of the gospel into the world, to go to all people. And, and wherever you go where there's people, there's going to be culture. And the culture has to be engaged. This is something that the church hasn't done well in the last 200 years. And as a result, we have seen the phenomenon of parachurch organizations in the last 200 years. Wherever the church drops the ball on something, you know, parachurch organizations have a way of creeping up. And, I, and, and, and I'm not knocking, I'm thankful for the ministries of parachurches, but at the same time, it, it's helpful for us as local churches to go, man, maybe we, we, want to, we dropped the ball on that. Uh, we think about abortion in America. In the early 1900s, uh, you know, believers, uh, con- you know, conservative, evangelical people, they weren't repping, they weren't repping pro-life in the early 1900s. And it took parachurch organizations to actually engage churches to show them, like, what's at stake, what's going on in abortion. This, it, you're actually executing a life. And it's not just murder, it's execution, because you're doing it with the power of the state. The state has said it's okay, this is wrong. And so you saw parachurches coming along, and, you know, that's a good thing to, to, to kind of slap the church and go, wake up, you guys need to get on this. As well with the civil rights movement. You have crazy, crazy racism going on. And you see these parachurch civil rights movements coming in and saying, well, what are you guys doing? Why are your churches segregated? Why are your Christian institutions segregated? Now, that's in the case of, of the white church. In the case of the black church in America, a lot of those organizations weren't parachurch. They just started within their churches and partnered with churches. Suffice it to say, parachurch organizations are good things. They serve goods. But at other times, they're sort of doing things that the church ought to be doing. You have parachurch organizations devoted to parenting or counseling or apologetics or whatever. And all of this to say, I want to give you just a, a quick, you know, quick something just to give you here as we're talking about how we engage. And we're looking at the model of Acts. We know the why we engage because Jesus is real and he sent us to go bring the truth, the facts. But how we engage, how do we carry this great commission? Now, the first way with regard to what we're talking about in terms of parachurch Parachurch does it kind of without the church often. So you have gospel engaging the culture without the church. That's what we call the parachurch. Um, and again, thankful for that, you know, the, holding the ground on important issues. But the commission was entrusted to the church. So whenever I see parachurch organizations that I want to partner with, I'm always like, okay, who's the board? Like, what churches do you guys go to? Are you in good local churches? Now, now, now in the same era of time where I said the last 200 years, you see the creeping up of parachurches, also, in the same last 200 years, you see a lot of churches just going cray-cray and getting into all kind of religious liberal stuff. Let me emphasize religious liberal. I'm not talking about political liberal. I'm talking about religious liberals who walk away from sound doctrine and the gospel. And you see them today ordaining people who are living in blatant sin and heresy. So there you have, there you have people who are engaging culture, you might say, and they're doing it with a so-called church, you might say, but they're, they don't have the gospel. They've walked away from the gospel. That leads to liberalism. Uh, next, you see uh, church plus gospel minus culture. That leads to fundamentalism. Fundamentalists are those who are often removed from culture. Uh, they, they think getting into the culture isn't good. You could, you could you know, get soiled in there or dirty in there or succumb or something like that. Unlike our Lord who was in culture, was a friend of sinners, Fundamentalists are often removed from that. And for them, the church becomes a fortress that we have to protect from the culture. We've got to build this thing. We've got to close the doors. We've got to keep them out. We've got to get, you know, guys at the top with arrows, you know, just, just shooting down people who are coming. We've got to protect the fortress. 
as opposed to being a force that is going out into the culture and trying to change things, trying to mix it up. Hence, they often know little about the broader culture because it doesn't concern them. And there's a good deal of fear within them. So they're looking at a fortress. What we see in the book of Acts is something different. We see the gospel and the culture and the church getting out there. And that's, that's how the Great Commission ought to work. Now, now, mind you, this is doctrinal fundamentalism. It's committed to fundamental doctrine. They're not running from culture. We hold to the fundamentals of the faith, but we're still going out into the culture. And, and that's our aim, to be a church that is bringing the gospel into the culture, seeing the lost saved, and seeing the saved sanctified. That is making disciples. And we want to make disciples of such quality that, they, that their impact can be felt in the culture and in the community. So in other words, all of, all of this to say, look, if Del Rey Church closed its doors, I would hope that, and this is going to sound weird, but if Del Rey Church closed its doors, I would hope that the crime would go up. I, and, and you shouldn't hope that crime goes up, so just follow me. I would hope that mental health would worsen. I would hope that divorce would go up, and, and uh, I would hope that, you know, youth are suffering. And, uh, you know, I would hope for all these bad things. And I say that because, look, if the church isn't, isn't involved and it closed, then nothing would happen. No, no one, you know, they'd see someone building an apartment here and they'd go, oh, what was there before? I don't know. Like, we're, if we're not making an impact. So I, I, I say it in that kind of weird way because I hope we're actually making an impact because that's what we're called to. We see this in the book of Acts. They're caring for widows. They're breaking down ethnic tensions. They're, you know, get the poor involved. They get the rich involved. They're, they're changing things. They're changing Roman society. Now, while, verse 16, Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within as he was observing the city full of idols. So that doesn't mean that when you go in the culture, you're just like, everything's cool in the culture. No, 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 you've got to get in there and you've got to bring the truth and that you're going you're gonna to feel stuff in your chest. You're going to watch things on the news, for example, and you go, man, that ain't right. I can't, believe, I, can't believe, I can't believe these people are saying that. Paul is in Athens. Athens is a spiritual town. They had many temples there. In verse 22, Paul, will, and we'll read it, Paul says, uh, and he stood in the midst of the area of Gophagus, and he says, uh, men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. Here in verse 16, he says the town was full of idols. Paul looks around the town. He walks around the town. We know he's a walking man, big old Popeye calves. And the text says that he is parouxno, parouxno, which it, it's hard to kind of translate it over into English. And so you get something like being provoked. It could mean something like uh, really upset. It, it could involve anger. It could also involve distress. It could involve sadness. It could involve heartache. It could involve compassion. So, so para uxno is, is it's just a whirlwind of emotions. Now, if there was time, I would give you a PowerPoint show on the archaeology of the place to kind of help you wrap around it, because there's so many crazy and kinky idols that have been unearthed from this area that have been excavated by archaeologists. There were so many different gods worshipped there. There's just not enough time to get into it, but a couple of quick names. There was Athena, who was the patron goddess of Athens, whose temple and statues were very, very popular. Um, and then you got other runner-ups like Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, Nike, uh, Heracles, Hermes, uh, Hestia, Pan, Poseidon. I could go on. I mean, the, the, you think there's a lot of Avengers. It just goes on. This just goes on. And, and, and whatever that new one is, you know, that I'm not going to watch. But, you know, there's just a bunch of these, like, you know, superhero gods. Now, the largest religious group that sort of encompassed the area was the Cult of Roma, 
which is the cult of the Caesar. They divinized Rome itself, and they divinized their rulers. This was true nationalism, where they saw their country as, you know, the, you know like, this country is godly. They, they really saw their country that way. It was, an, it was, it was a, a pagan nationalism of Rome, and, and their head was, was adored as, as divine. And all these idols are just kind of serving the purposes of that head. And the temples, I mean, like I said, it's crazy and kinky. We don't have time to get into it. And the slideshow would get crazy because there's like statues of naked guys with erections. And there's prostitutes that work in the temples who, are, who get paid uh, to have sex as a part of the, their pagan worship. It's all really strange. Now, it's easy for us to say it's strange, though, but let us remind ourselves that we are a culture of sexuality and spirituality that's all mixed together. I mean, I, was, I made a shot at the new Marvel movie, but, I mean, kind of a case in point, there's fornication and homosexuality mixed in with mystic religions of these gods-like figures and whatever. So we do sex and spirituality, and we do materialism and idolatry. Uh, we, you know, oh, you know, Athens, it's in your face. Our billboards are in your face. Are you kidding me? Driving around the city, how many times? You know, I'm, like, trying to distract the kids. Hey, look over there, because there's a... Big old sign talking about something highly inappropriate, you know. Dad, what is, uh, you know, like, um, son, let's, uh, let's talk about something else. Our billboards are filled with idolatry. If the Lord tarries, you know, archaeologists will dig up our towns and go, man, these were some, some kinky and crazy people. So, we, so it's, it's easy to judge them. Let's just be reminded that, that the mirror turns back on, on us. We live in a one-stand, hook-up, shack-up kind of a world. We worship the gods of our culture money and identity and the rest, it's just a lot more subtle to us because we're embedded in our culture. And when you're embedded in a culture, you don't notice it until you get outside of it. You go, I, man, I thought everyone made tacos like this. And then you go to Texas or whatever, you're like, these suck. You know, <laughs> I'm going back to Cali. Uh, you know, or everyone made tamales like this. And then your El Salvadorian friend is like, man, you got to try this. And you're like, oh, this is different, you know. So when you're in the culture, you, just, you, you see things, and isn't this how everyone does? And then you get outside of it, and you start to see things. And we, want, we constantly want to be doing that as we're engaging our culture because it can, it, can, it can latch on to us. And so we want to step outside, and the Bible helps us do this. Verse 17, so he is reckoning with them in the synagogue, with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. Notice that Paul hits the synagogues again. We talked about why that was strategic and theological and sociological and practical. But this time, notice what else he hits. He hits the marketplace. The marketplace is a public location of life and culture and commerce and various social and political events, particularly for Gentile cultures. It's, it might be something like the Fox Hills Mall. Some of you are like, what's that? Westfields. But it will forever be Fox Malls to me. Um, it, so it's sort of like a mall. People are going there. They're shopping. They're talking. You know, they're po you know, there's signs of stuff going on in the community. Notice the emphasis of Paul's activity being rational. It's dialegomai, the text says. He is, so he was dialegomai in synagogues and in these marketplaces. He, he is reasoning. Paul's method. Okay, why do we bring the facts? Because Jesus is real, he's factual, and he told us to go do that. How do we do it? Here, here look, at, look at this example. By doing dialegomai, by reasoning. We're not moting. We're not entertaining. We're reasoning. That's why I don't walk around the stage doing hoopla or trying to entertain you or whatever, trying to whip you up into emotional frenzy. I'm reasoning with you. I'm trying to engage your minds. I'm trying to teach you stuff. Because the Christian faith is a dialegomai faith. It's a reasoning faith. Christianity is a religion that is based on evidence. So we need to 
reason, we need to bring facts. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is what? The evidence of things. It is the evidence. It is the substance, the text says. It's, it's substance. It's evidence. So we, so we bring it. Speaking of bringing it, go back to the text. Draw your eyes at verse 18. In verse 18, we, we read, and so some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, these are the big intellectual titans of the culture, some, some of these big intellectual titans were conversing with him, and some were saying, well, what would you say, you little idle babbler, what do you want to say? So they're hating on him. He seems to be worshiping uh, some strange deities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. <laughs> verse 19, and he took them and he brought them to the area of Gopagus, saying, Hey, may, may we know what this new teaching is which you have been proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They were just, they were junkies. You know, they were on their, they were on their cell phone all day, just, just all day, just taking it in. They were just always looking for something new. So Paul goes up to the area Gopagus, which is, you know, the Facebook page of his day, uh, to, the, to what is known as Mars Hill. Here are the steps to Mars Hill. Just picture Paul's big old calves just flying up those steps. Uh, here, here's, here's the view. Here's Mars Hill as it is viewed from the Acropolis. And here's a view of Mars Hill from the base of it, kind of looking up at it. So Paul, Paul gets up on the hill, and the guys are like, okay, what are you going to say? And notice they're being emotional. They're being emotional in the way they fake news him and represent him and you know, t you know, try to marginalize him. And so he goes up there into the center of it. I mean, this is like where the podcasts happen. This is the Joe Rogan show, you know, the most important podcast, or I wouldn't say important, but what a lot of people listen to. Now, verse 21, now the Athenians and the strangers visiting, they used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing stories for something new. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. Here, look at this slide. This is a view of Athens from the Areopagus today. Isn't it beautiful? Imagine just looking off and listening to Paul with a sermon. Imagine the blue sky that stretches over Greece, and behind you is the Parthenon and the Temple of, of Athena, and you've got all these kinky, crazy statues all around you. And there's, this is the very market where Socrates taught. Socrates. So you're, you're in this place of, of intellect and of art and of paganism. In the distance, uh, this is where Homer pictured the Odyssey. So Paul's there, you know, Homer and, and Socrates and all this stuff. You know, he's right there. And what he starts to do, next point on your outline, is contextualization. This is where the, the, this is where the church and, and, and the gospel and the culture start to merge in the Great Commission, where you start doing contextualization. In this context, to contextualize is to bring the objective message of the Bible to the subjective context of a given culture, a given audience. Uh, given cultures have different obstacles and different, different you know, needs. Linguistically, you know, when you translate things from the Bible into different cultures, there could be certain hurdles where, like, this word in their culture means something different, so we might have to translate it differently. New Testament scholar and missiologist Dr. Dean Fleming explains that contextualizing the gospel is inherent to the mission of the church. The book of Acts tells the story of the church whose very identity involved expressing the good news about Jesus in multiple settings and among new groups of people. It is little wonder, then, that interpreters of the New Testament and missiologists alike have begun to ask whether the experience of the early church in Acts might serve as a crucial paradigm for the process of contextualization. Indeed, it does. And speaking of contextualization in Acts, draw your eyes back at the text, verse 23. So Paul, he says, well, I was passing through, you guys, okay? I, I, have, I have your attention. 
So verse 23, I was passing through, I was examining the objects of your worship, and I found that there was an altar there with an inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Man, he grabbed something from their culture and he used it as a springboard to talk to them. Uh, they had all kinds of idols to various gods and religions. We've talked about that. In Rome, all roads lead to Rome, of course. Uh, all roads lead to one god, and they got all their gods, so they get all their bases covered. But, and to make sure they get all their bases covered, we got all these gods, but, you know, what if they're all not going to hook us up in the afterlife? So I know what we'll do. We'll make an idol to the unknown god, and then we got all of our bases covered. So if we forgot a god or didn't know a god, boom, boom, shakalaka, there goes the unknown god. Now, Paul references this idol to make his point. He's contextualizing. For starters, he's a Jewish man. He would have spoken Aramaic or Hebrew at home, but here he's preaching in Greek, and Luke is writing it in Greek, so he's, he's already doing contextualization linguistically. He's bringing the message to them in their language, and then he's using elements of their culture. And this inscription is just clutch, because he's like, so all your pagan gods are false, but let's talk about the unknown one, because I know him. I'm going to tell you about him. Look, 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 look at verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is the Lord of the heaven and the earth, he does not dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made one man from every nation and mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of which their habitation, that they would seek God, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. So, so he pulls from that inscription, and now he pulls from one of their, their poets. There's a poet who says something about we are his children. He goes, hey, I'm going to use that to you know, start contextualizing this message. You see me doing this all, all the time. I'm making references to Marvel movies. Last week I quoted one of our great American poets, Tupac. And, uh, I mean, this week I was thinking about actually U2, uh, U2 being a picture of the gospel. And I thought, oh, i got to save this for a special occasion uh, when I'm talking to my friends who are into U2 or whatever. And you might, before moving on, some of you might be curious. So here goes. You can use it free of charge. Uh, remember in 2014 when the U2 album Songs of Innocence just showed up in everyone's iTunes subscriber personal devices, unasked. I'm not a rock guy. You guys know that about me. I'm just like hip-hop and church music. Um, and so it showed up in my thing, and I was like, man, what is this? I don't know, you know, uh, you know uh, there's probably YouTube fans in here. So let me, you know, but I was like, man, what is this? How did this get in here? You know, and I go to, like, you're taking up space on my device. And then I see, like, people are commenting on it. And, I, you know, some people are like, woo, you know, and others are like, uh. And then I thought, like, oh, this is really interesting, too, because it's titled Innocent. Innocence just appeared in my account. That's what the gospel does. You get the righteousness of Christ and his innocence that appears into your account that's credited to you. You did nothing to deserve it. You didn't pay for it. It just showed up in your account. It's like, oh, I'm going to use that sometime. You know? That's what Paul's doing. He's like, yeah, you got this poet. Hey, you got this thing. I'm going to start bringing it together to bring this objective point to you about the truth of who God is. Look, there are gods that men want. And then there is the true and living God. And the two are not the same. And he does it in a way using their cultural artifacts to, to bring this point. Now, as we're contextualizing and we're engaging culture, we need to be careful with this. And so on your outline, let me give you 
four things that we need to do as we do this. And, and they are quickly reject, receive, reassess, and redeem. As we're engaging culture, we need to reject what is terrible in culture. All cultures have terrible stuff in it, immoral and bad things. Notice Paul didn't grab one of the named gods. He wasn't like Aphrodite. Yeah, that's Jesus. <laughs> you know, he, Zeus, that's the father. He didn't grab one of the pagan gods. He, he used it in a way that was strategic, the unknown, okay? He doesn't say, let me tell you who Mars is. Now, there's a, uh, you know, uh, those... Those pagan gods around, he, he sort of, you see what he rejects, and you see it goes for the jugular. He, he, he doesn't mince his words with telling them you know, that, that, that they're not real. So we reject what is terrible. We secondly receive what is true, what is innate, what's beautiful. If something in the culture is good, we just receive it. Oh, that's a nice painting. Did a Christian paint it? I don't know, but it's a nice painting. I'm just going to buy it and hang it on my wall. That's a nice meal. Did a Christian make it? I don't know, but it tastes good. I'm just going to receive it. You know, is, I, man, these hamburgers are good. Is it in and out, though? Does it have a verse on the bottom? I don't know, but I really like fat burger. I'm not sure who's behind it. It's just good. I'm going to receive it. Friendships, relationships. You know, all sort, there's all sorts of things that are just in God's common graces, things that you just go, I'm just going to receive this. Thirdly, we need to reassess. Some things might be morally neutral, and good folks might refrain, and other folks might consume. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when the Apostle Paul deals with meat that is sacrificed to idols. That was a big controversial issue in the day. Like, how can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? And now, as long as someone isn't lapsing into pagan idolatry, Paul saw it as fine. You got a bunch of pagans around town, and they sacrifice animals that are fake gods, and then they take the leftover meat, and they sell it at Ralph's and Trader Joe's and whatever, uh, Paul's like, Why, you know, don't trip on that. It was, but it was used for pagan stuff. Paul says, don't trip on it. Reassess it. Some people might not be cool with it. Might be like, nah, mm, I can't go there. And it's like, okay, fine. We're not going to divide over that. We just reassess. We can be indifferent. We might have biases, whatever, but we're just going to be fine on that. Uh, next, next point, we redeem. We redeem what is trampled, incomplete or broken. Some things in the culture we seek to redeem. Paul redeemed a pagan poet, and he made a point about God. Not to mention the pagan inscription. He made a point about God. As Christians, we see things in the culture, and we use them for sharing and explaining our faith, and, and we use them for defending our faith. And, and we do this all while seeking to redeem what is incomplete or broken. An obvious example of this in culture is people. Right? You see a person who's engaged in prostitution or stripping. We go, I want to redeem you from that. Whereas stripping or pornography or selling our bodies, we, there's not a Christian version of that. There's no way for us to, like, receive that. Oh, well, you know, uh, it was a Christian strip club. All the ladies there are believers. No, no, no. We don't do that. We don't do Christian stripping. We don't do Christian drugs. Um, you know, Christians can create things like music and movies because music and movies are, are, are fine. But we, but we don't do other things. We don't do Christian crack. Uh, well, we do coffee, let's be honest. But um, now all of this is a foundation for Christmas. Some of you, because going back to what I said in the introduction, there's some of you going to say, trees, decorating trees, that's inherently pagan. You can't do that. And I'm going to spend time next week, or in my next installment, talking about trees and uh, tree toppers. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll spend time on that. But even if pagans use trees in this way, you could redeem the practice because there's nothing wrong with decorating a tree. So get over it. I, there's just nothing wrong with that. That said, some may reassess and decide to forego the tree for certain reasons. Like, you know, maybe resisting overconsumption or culture or whatever, uh, or using it as a way of making a, a gospel in, in, in engagement. 
For example, we think of Marlon and Jimena, who we sent out into a hostile culture. It'd probably be good for them not to decorate a tree, I'm guessing, because that might automatically, you know, create a meaning that's not necessary, and it'd just be easy for sake of mission not to do this. Now, more about trees next week, but the big one for today of this series is fake news about Christ and Christmas. They, oh, it's all pagan copies. They claim that those outside of the church, outside of the church, will say, oh, this is all, this is all paganism. You even have some in, in fundamentalist uh, churches and like some cult groups like uh, Jehovah Witnesses and whatnot who will pull Jeremiah 10 out of context and they'll, they'll argue and say, oh, this is paganism too. But uh, again, look at the categories of reject, receive, reassess, and redeem. Okay, you, you know, we can redeem, we, we can receive, decorating a tree, there's nothing wrong with that. As I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, eating some meat that was chopped up to Aphrodite, as long as you're not doing Aphrodite stuff with it, you know, enjoy the steak. Acts chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 10 are noted here on your outline that make the same point. The early church uh, reassessed and processed and said we can, we can receive these, we can redeem these, and, and use them in appropriate ways. So with regard to Christianity and Christ himself being a pagan copycat religion, there are these skeptics who are going to say that the pagan festival known as Saturnalia, which celebrated the pagan god of Saturn for a week in December, that's where the Christians got it. Uh, they, they decorated trees, and they lit candles, and they sang house to house, and they had meals, and they gave gifts. See, that's what you guys do. That's where you got it from. Like, no, I'm sorry. Giving people gifts and singing and eating food and lighting candles, that's just what humans do. Pagans can't co-op those. Now, now uh, further, when you dig into them and you actually do your homework and you read the primary sources, the fake news is exposed. Because what they leave out in the comparison of Saturnalia is that... Uh, Saturnalia offered humans to Saturn. And yeah, we don't do human sacrifice. Oh, oh, and the food stuff that they did? Oh, yeah, they did it naked and they had orgies and stuff. Oh, oh, the presents they exchanged? No, they weren't real presents. They were like gag gifts from their pagan gods because their pagan gods didn't get along with each other. They are not the same. Saturnalia further wasn't celebrated on December 15th. Lots of pagans do stuff in the winter. That doesn't prove anything. Just that pagans do stuff in the winter. We do crazy stuff in the winter in our culture, too. Not a big deal. Skeptics also invoke the pagan celebration known as Nautilus Solis Invicti, which roughly translates to the birthday, the birthday of the sun god. And folks will go there, see, sun. I'm like, yeah, it's S-U-N, bro. Like, we worship the S-O-N. It's kind of a difference if you can't tell. And they'll say, well, but, but it, it, it was, they, they celebrated the sun god on the 25th of December, and you guys do, too. Now, the problem is the earliest mention of this is in 354 A.D. in the Philokalian calendar, and it doesn't say anything about festivals. Just that the birthday of this, uh, of this pagan sun god was implemented by the, uh, the pagan emperor Aurelian in 274. And so th that's all that we know from that. So the skeptic is going gonna, is gonna to claim that 300 years later, Constantine took this pagan holiday and hijacked it. Fake news. We know that Christians before this time thought that Jesus was born on December 25th. For example, we have in the writings of Hippolytus of Rome in 204, in his commentary in the book of Daniel, you can look it up, it dates to 204, and I quote, for the first advent of our Lord in the flesh when he was born in Bethlehem was December the 25th. So this predates all of that. Fake news. Further, we know from the ancient historian Sextus Julius Africanus that, that Jesus, he was born in the 100s, okay? And in his book, Conographi, which is a five-volume history of the world, he writes that Christ was born in December, or at least the people at the time believed that he was born in December. And so, look, this guy's born in the 100s. This predates all this pagan goofball stuff. So who was copying who? Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. Who was copying who? 
who, you know, and further, Sextus Julius Africanus was a pagan before he came to Christ. So if anyone knows this stuff, he did. And on the note of Sextus Julius Africanus, you can look it up, it's worth noting Africanus. He's African. And I say that because a lot of the fake news that surrounds, you know, Christianity, people say it's a white man's religion. And these Europeans, these white pagan European politicians made it up. It's a white man's religion. Uh, no, fake news. Uh, I think Africanus would beg to differ. Christianity was deeper in Africa and Asia and the Middle East before it was in Europe. In fact, Sextus, Africanus, ties, is tied to Agbar of Edessa, who's also born in the 100s. Agbar of Edessa was the king of Osirin from 177 to 212, and he became a believer in Jesus. Uh, uh, and, 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 and in 200 AD, Okay, this Arab king in 200 AD declared Christianity the official religion of, of the state that he governed. Like, you had Arab states declaring Christianity uh, the, the state religion long before Constantine and the Europeans would even have state churches. The Mesopotamians had state churches long before. Arabs, Asians, Africans, they're Christians. Brown and black people were, were Christians. Yeah, white people were too. It's fake news to say it's a white man's religion. Yet still, the fake news persists. A little over 10 years ago, there was a film series called The Zeitgeist that peddled the pagan claim that Jesus was a copycat of ancient Egyptian god Horus. Maybe you've heard that. They weren't the first nor the last to make this claim. Around the same time, that great intellectual titan Bill Maher from his wonderful film Religulos also was making this claim. They boldly claim that, you know, Horus, and you go, how do you know that? And they start making these parallels. Well, Horus had 12 disciples, and Horus was crucified, and then you actually dig into the source, and you go, we don't have evidence he had 12 disciples. He wasn't crucified. Oh, well, he was born of a virgin, just like Christmas. And then you dig into the sources, and you go, Horus wasn't born of a virgin. Horus's mom was the goddess Isis, who was the goddess of fertility. Oh, she was getting it on. That's what fertility goddesses do. She wasn't a virgin. She was an underworld goddess. She was quite active. And according to this pagan religion, they believe that Isis had Horus, get this, after her husband Osiris, who was her brother, was murdered by his brother, Set, who is also a god. These gods are very dysfunctional. And the, and, and the plan was foiled after he murdered Osiris, who was Horus' daddy, when apparently, you know, she comes along, he, and, and she uses her goddess powers to recreate his body. And according to the legend, though, they threw his, his man stuff into the Nile River, and the bottom feeders ate it, but according to, to their religion, she, the magical goddess of fertility, put his body back together, just like Humpty Dumpty or Mr. Potato Head, and uh, the part that was lost, she made a new one, and they got it on, and he was born. Horace was born. That's not Christmas. What are you talking about, Bill Maher? What are you talking about? That's fake news. And here's the fact. Here's the fact. It's worth noting that we don't exactly know for sure, historically, that Jesus was born December 25th. The Eastern Church, to this day, has recognized January 6th as the day of his birth. Uh, in our family, we celebrate both because it's just a reason to have um, um, more food. But uh, anyway, in 200, the Egyptian father, Clement of Alexandria, actually wrote about this. And I'll put it in front of you. We've got to move fast because we've got to land this plane. But there are those, he wrote, who determine not only the year of our Lord's birth, but also the day... And they say that it took place in the 28th year of Augustus and the 25th of Pachon. And uh, the treating of his passion with various accuracy, some say it took place in the 16th year of Tiberius or the 25th of Famenoth, which would be March. 
and others say the 25th of Farmuthi, and others say this, and others say that, and further say, you know, and so on and so forth. It, it, this is just an early source saying, hey, lots of people have lots, lots of different ideas about this, not a big deal. Now, the fact here is that on the one hand, we can show that Christians before the pagans were doing stuff in December, there were Christians before who celebrated December and December 25th. We can also see in earlier sources that there were some Christians who were like, eh, we don't know, not a big deal. You have reference on your outline, Romans 14, where Paul talks to those who observe days and make a big deal out of them. And he says, hey, calm down, don't make a big deal. It, what, celebrate whatever day you want, just do it unto the Lord. If some fake pagan god was, was magically, uh, you know, uh, uh, born out of uh, some weird kinky goddess thing or whatever on my birthday, I, you know, I'm not switching my birthday up. But if they want to switch my birthday up, I don't care. As long as you celebrate my birthday, I'm good with that. I, I mean, wearing Nikes doesn't mean that I'm, you know what, we got we to gotta pull Matt aside. He might be a pagan worshiping the god Nike. <laughs> it's like, come on, like, not, that's not what it's going for. Christians weren't running around trying to co-opt pagan stuff to create Christianity. That said, Christians did contextualize. They might take things that, you know, people do, and they might redeem it and reuse it and repurpose it to make a point. The crackpot conspiracies are just nonstop. The other one, before we get to the final point, and I land this plane and we have communion, is Mithra. Oh, have you heard about Mithra? They say, oh, you Christians, you, you just jacked Mithra. Mithra, you, you just plagiarized Mithra. Mithra is your ghostwriter. You say, oh, who's Mithra? Mithra is a pagan god of Iranian origin, uh, per, very popular among Persians and Romans. They say he was born of a virgin. You dig up the primary sources, and it's just not true. <laughs> he wasn't born of a woman. He came out of a rock. He was born out of a rock. Read the sources. He came out of a rock, butt naked and like a teenager already, with a dagger in one hand and a torch in the other. That doesn't come close to what we're talking about at Christmas. That's just fake news, and it needs to be confronted. That's the final point on your outline. In the text of Acts 17, we see Paul not only contextualizes, but he also confronts. There are things that he'll receive, reassess, but there are things that he rejects. For sake of time, look at verses 29 through 31. See how he just starts going for it at them. He starts confronting them. And what he goes for, verse 32, is the jugular. He says, the resurrection of the dead. And he starts talking about Jesus' resurrection. And verse 32 says, people began to sneer. Haters hated. And then verse 33, we read, Paul went out of their midst. So Paul contextualized, but he confronted. And he confronted them with the very center of the gospel, the risen Lord. The risen Lord. We are reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the problem of man is not a lack of contextualization. The problem of man is, is that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And it's foolishness because we're dead in our sins. And dead people don't hear things. You could contextualize all day to a corpse and they're never going to bounce up and go, that illustration about YouTube, that really got me. You know, They don't come back to life from contextualization. They come back to life by the power of the gospel. And some apparently in Acts 17 experienced the power of the gospel. Look at verse 34. Some joined and believed. Among those were Dionysius and the Aragopite and the woman named Damaras and others. So there were people whose lives were changed. And Paul was bold enough to bring, to bring facts to clear up all the nonsense and say, Jesus was really born. Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. The resurrection, that's the heart of their faith. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is in vain. Why, why is our faith in vain? Because then we're still dead in our sin because he's dead. Now note here, the preaching was centered on death and resurrection. 
right? And all the apostolic preaching is that way. This isn't to minimize Christmas, but, but, but Easter is kind of the thing that we're preaching. And when we preach Easter, we get Christmas because, you know, someone who's dead can only be dead if they lived. And so that's what we're preaching. And Christmas, we celebrate the one who came to life. Grab your cups. Take the top. Take the bread. This is a symbol of his body. This is his flesh. As I said, he wasn't merely flesh. He wasn't merely man. He was, he was God in the flesh. This is what Paul lifts up to them. This is what they couldn't understand. This is what they didn't fit with their culture and their ideas. That God would become a man. No flesh. No birth. Birth gives you flesh. Paul said in Galatians 4.4, 4, he spoke of Jesus being born of a woman. Again, another fact check, because there are people who say, Paul didn't talk about Christmas. No, he said Galatians 4.4, 4, he was born of a woman. Okay? We take this bread and we remember the Christ child who took on flesh. Let's eat. With Paul's speech in front of us, Acts 17, it's, it's really cool to tell you guys this. Paul's speech is affixed in, a, in Greek on a tablet at the entrance of the Areopagus to this day. To this day, it's on the Areopagus in Greek on a plaque. It stands as a monument to the time when the Athenians missed the significance of the one whom Paul identified as the unknown God. And I hope that there's none here today who will leave not knowing who God is. You've heard him in your ears. You've heard me speak of him. You've heard me tell you what he has done. But there's one thing to hear and there's one thing to come and to cry out to him. Say, and look at this cup and say, it was my blood that deserved to be shed on the ground. And to receive his blood, to receive what he has done for you, and to know his forgiveness. Oh, that all would know the unknown God of the Areopagus. He's the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit, and we celebrate the Son's blood as we drink. Thank you for being patient, church. We've covered a lot of ground today. We've explored the mission that Christ gave to his church and a culture and how they gave, had this message that they would contextualize. This sets the stage for us thinking about things in our culture that we need to reject, receive, reassess, and redeem. In a timely manner, it, it gives us categories to think about with our own Christmas traditions. I'll tell you what, I am way less worried about European pagan decorations and European paganism in our, in our churches. I don't think that's an issue. I'm not worried about that. If some old... Pagans celebrated in a, ho a holiday in December, I could care less. That's not why we do it. Even if some Christians back in the day shifted some dates in order to engage and uh, contextualize, I don't care. I'm fine with that. If my wife said, let's celebrate your birthday on a different date so that I could rope in some of our family members who don't know the Lord because they'll come to your birthday, but they won't come to church. Let's ch oh, they can't make it on your actual birthday. Let's change the date so we can accommodate them and share with them. I am totally fine with that. I just celebrate my birthday, you know, that, just celebrate it, you know, let's have some fun. It, the time doesn't matter. I'm not concerned about dates and trees and seasons. Fine by me. Fine by me. But I am concerned for us that as we go into our culture, that we will be careful to note the things in our culture that want to get us off mission. Will we go without compromise and focus on the fact of the risen Lord who has come and make that the thing that we're focused on. And make that the thing that we herald in these crazy and divided days. Let's pray. Let's sing.
Thank you for being patient with this long-winded one. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you confront us in your word, that Paul and your servants in the early church confronted their culture. Uh, Lord, we confess that often we don't do that. We play it cool. We try not to make fast moves. We want to keep our friends and whatnot. And, and Lord, I pray that you would give us a boldness to, to share your truth. And give us wisdom to know ways in which we can go about bringing your objective truth, maybe using some subjective illustrations, but never compromising the objectivity and the reality of, of your truth. And it's some, at sometimes, Lord, some things won't contextualize because it's just the, the, the state of the way things are. So will you give us just intellectual insight to know how to explain to people certain things? And Lord, may we never rely on our explanations and our, our efforts, Lord, it must come from you. And so we beseech you, the Lord of the harvest, to seek and to save the lost. We petition you, Lord, now for our loved ones and our family members who are far from you. Lord, save them. Rescue them, we pray. Bring them home for Christmas this season, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.